Hi, everyone, and welcome to our seventh episode of You Shy in the Loop. This week, we're thinking about civics from a national security and international relations perspective, thanks to our guest this week, who is an expert in this area. Representative Will Hurd worked for the CIA for nine years before successfully running for Congress in 2014. He represented Texas's 23rd Congressional District for six years as a moderate Republican, before choosing not to rerun in 2020, but during his time there was appointed to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Emily, I found approaching this interview with someone who is an expert in cybersecurity and technology quite interesting because I admit that as a civics podcast, I initially wasn't sure how exactly they related. However, in my research, I've really started seeing the connection because as the Center for Strategic and International Studies argues, an increase in civics education will ultimately strengthen our national security. Yeah, and you really have managed to cover a lot of ground in this interview ranging from the threat China poses to the consequences of misinformation spreading to the role of technology in the military in protecting civilians and so much more. Yeah, Representative Heard really provided some helpful insight. So without further ado, let's hear what he has to say. Okay, Congressman Heard, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure to be on with y'all. I've, I've ha- I have a new affinity for University of Chicago, having the opportunity to, to teach a class there. There, So it's exciting to be with y'all. I'm excited awesome. to be with y'all. Awesome. So to start out, I know that, you know, you worked at the CAA for quite some time before going into politics. Um, one of the reasons that you made that switch was because you used to brief members of Congress. So what was it about that briefing that made you want to pursue politics? Well, my job was to collect intelligence and inform policymakers on some of the most important issues of the day. I started my career in the CIA in October of 2000. That was the USS Cole bombing. This is probably the first time the American public really um, became truly aware of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Back in the late 90s, 1998, you had the uh, bombings of, of some of the embassies in, in Africa. Uh, but you know, some people started thinking there, but really the USS Cole is what kind of changed that opinion. And so that was my literally my first day. Um, and then fast forward through my career, two years in DC, you know, being at CIA headquarters when 9-11 happened, two years in India, two years in Pakistan, two years in New York City doing interagency work, and then a year and a half in Afghanistan where I managed all of our undercover operations. And so in all of those experiences, I had to brief various members of Congress. So one of Congress's role is oversight. And so if Congress has the power of the purse, the ability to fund the executive branch, um, a lot of times you travel to where that money is being spent to make sure it's being spent in the right way. So, so you had appropriators, the people that sit on the House Appropriations Committee or the Senate Appropriations Committee uh, coming out. You had members of the various intelligence organizations. Uh, what's unique about the U.S. is you have civilian oversight of the intelligence community. Um, this is not something that you have in a lot of different places. Uh, the U.K. to some, some extent... Uh, when I've traveled in Germany, German, the, the German Bundestag, that's their, their parliament, would ask me questions about their um, intelligence services because I knew more about their intelligence services because civilian oversight of our own and that interaction. So, so th- these were some of the people that were coming out. And I was pretty shocked by the caliber of many of our elected officials. Um, they didn't know basic questions. And, and one that was kind of the 
the last straw the, or the final straw that broke the camel's back, whatever that saying is. Um, it was a briefing um, in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, when a, a bomb went off in front of the embassy, took out a section of the wall, killed some of our local guards. And my unit was just responsible for trying to figure out what happened. And we had we conducted a couple dozen operations. Had members of the HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, were in Kabul that night. I was supposed to give them briefing. And we get in the briefing and one of the members of Congress asked, and they had been on the, the committee for over five years, says, why was Iran not supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan the way Iran was supporting other groups um, in other parts of the world? And, and this was about 2007, 2008 timeframe. And I started explaining the Sunni-Shia divide. And that same congressman raises his hand um, and says, hey, Will, what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? And I'm thinking he's getting ready to make a really inappropriate joke. And so who am I to deny him this opportunity? And my response was, I don't know, Congressman, what's the difference? And his <laughs> face goes bright red, didn't know that difference in Islam, wow. right? And so it, it's okay for my brother not to know that difference within Islam um, because he sells cable here in San Antonio, Texas. But it's not okay for someone who's spending billions of our hard-earned taxpayer dollars, who's making decisions that impact whether our brothers and sisters or, or spouses or you know, moms and dads go off into to dangerous war zones. And so um, that's one of the reasons I was frustrated with that. And so I uh, did what my mama said, either part of the problem, part of the solution. So I tried to run for Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry for like, the long-winded answer. The long-winded no, that's answer, perfect. But- <laughs> that's perfect. Um, yeah. So going kind of going off of that, you know, it, obviously it is important that we have elected officials who understand national security. So how do you think that, um, you know, like having being able to hold people accountable, those elected officials accountable um, can really impact or strengthen our national security? Yeah. So, so he, here's what's difficult, right? You know, we are lucky. We as Americans are lucky um, to live where we live. Right. We control from sea to sea. Right. We have two great neighbors, Mexico and Canada. Right. And so the need and we have a melting pot of of a culture. And 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 so so the need to have to engage. Right. Um, is is not as as refined as it is in Europe. Right. Where Mm. you have countries that are smaller than my hometown of San Antonio. Right. And, and so sometimes as Americans, we we overlook how interconnected the world is. Right. And so this is not always something that's at top of mind of most American citizens, because you're going out, put food on your table, roof over your head. Right. So you're not following or, or participating and looking at these things. So if you're not paying attention, then you're not going to hold elected officials um, for this or ask those right questions. Now, this was unique when I went. So I ran for Congress in 09 and lost. I lost a runoff by 700, 400 votes, which is not a lot of votes. Um, and then um, I ran and won in, in, in 2014. What was going on in 2014? ISIS. Everybody was watching the, the videos of ISIS, you know, decapitating people. And so folks were scared. Folks were nervous. You had ISIS using social media to radicalize people, even set 6,000 miles away here in the United States. So folks started paying a little more attention to that. Um, you know, 9-11, another example, right? Right. We had a, a unique impact. And so, so, so at times when there is a reason to be focused, uh, when Kim Jong-un in North Korea was doing the extreme saber, saber rattling 
and like testing a nuclear weapon or, or, or a missile, a missile launch almost monthly, people were freaking out that, man, maybe something may, something may, may happen. So when, when you have those kinds of really scary things going on, folks are a little bit more attuned, right? Um, but how do you keep elected officials? Um, a lot of, always a lot of debate around Afghanistan, right? And, you know, the, some call it the forever war. Um, how much money are we really spending in, in Afghanistan? How many people are actually being killed in Afghanistan? It's changed, it's evolved ever since, you know, for 17, in, in those 17 years. Um, right now, I think one of the most important issues um, that, that we have to worry about in the United States of America is the, the new Cold War with the Chinese Communist Party. And, and ultimately, this is a new Cold War to who is going to achieve global leadership and advanced technology. And why should everybody care? Because this is going to impact our way of life. If we want the dollar to be one of the strongest currencies in the world, this matters. If we want to make sure we have good paying jobs, um, this matters. If we want to make sure our economy is the most important economy in the world, this new Cold War matters. And we need to be making sure that we're having conversations around how do we stay competitive in this environment. And so that's not a pure national security play. But why are we not, you know, another example is the crisis happening at the border right now. This is not new, right? This, this happened two years ago. It happened four years before that. It was something to be expected. And guess what? The, the way to solve the crisis on the border is to address the root causes that are in the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. So why did, have we not had a robust foreign, foreign aid package for that part of, of the world. And so these are how, so if, if, if you know, there's an immigration story in the newspapers every single day uh, and people that care about that should also be caring about our foreign policy because that's how you solve, that's how you ultimately solve this problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I, 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 I hope that answered the question. No, that's great. Yeah, and that kind of leads me into t- asking about China. What is it about China's um, progression technology that makes it so, such a threat to our national security? It's, first off, it's an authoritarian government, meaning they can marshal all their factors of production in one direction. Right? Uh, recently in the headlines, people were, were looking at Jack Ma. You know, he was probably the richest um, Chinese national. Um, his company just got fined like $2.4 billion, the largest fine ever. Um, because the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party said that he was involved in, in protectionist and, and, and monopolistic practices. And Jack Ma, the company's response was, we humbly accept this, um, this admonishment and everybody else should use us as an example of what not to do. It's like, <laughs> are you kidding me, right? Um, uh, last week, uh, 30, 30 Chinese national um, um, entertainers, right? And, and, and let me be clear also, when I, I, I try to be very specific when I say the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, these entities, these organizations, right? It's not, you know, it's not the Chinese people, no beef with them, definitely no beef with Chinese Americans, right? Or any Asian right. Americans. And, and I want to make that clear because the amount of hate that, we're, that, that my brothers and sisters in the Asian community are seeing, it, it's important to, to, to make that distinction. So, so, but the Chinese government, every five years, they, they have a new plan and they call it the Made in China plan. They, they outline themselves. It's written in their words, it's in their documents that say China is good, his goal is to surpass the United States of America as a global leader in advanced technologies. And they outline the technologies, 5G, 
quantum computing, artificial intelligence, certain areas of space, and you know, uh, so forth and, and so on. And they recognize that you know, they're going to have the largest economy in pure size, right? Because they're so big. Um, and, and they recognize that this is the future of the country. And so every factor of production is directed in, in a, achieving that goal. There are also been selling, you know, when I was in the CIA, made in China meant it was a knockoff, right? Now mm-hmm. made in China really means uh, probably made in the United States first and some and, or somewhere else and it was stolen, right? And so, so this is something that we have to be, be, be mindful of. And then they're using their One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, I think they're in 138 countries now where they're using economic incentives to try to in, insert infrastructure into these countries that they can take advantage of, right? And that's a lot of digital infrastructure. And what are we doing to counter this? Um, our, our State Department, USAID, and these other elements within our foreign policy and, and foreign aid infrastructure are not coordinated. We don't have a national economic security plan. Um, in order to counter this one belt, one road initiative. So that's what makes it difficult is that everybody within the Chinese government is focused on this, on this one goal. And, um, and they're doing everything they can um, in order to pursue it to include taking advantage of international organizations. Right? You know, I, I think the most known international organization right now is the WHO, the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be pulling out of these entities we should be staying involved in them and we should be making sure that they're based on our value systems, right? And that our allies are being a counter uh, to what the, the Chinese government and, and their allies are trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so the solar wind tact was a big you know, issue that has happened recently. How do you think that that has exposed kind of you know, holes in our democracy? For our listeners, the solar winds hack refers to an event in December 2020 where Russian hackers cyber attacked a U.S. information technology firm. This hack allowed the foreigners to spy on top private companies, as well as high levels of the U.S. government. The breach is one of the largest cybersecurity attacks in recent memory. Now, back to the interview. Well, the, the, the holes it, it, it exposes holds, holes in our digital infrastructure, and it, and it shows that, you know, uh, um, so the, the Russians and the Chinese are going to use um, these asymmetric tools to their advantage. And it starts with, what is a digital act of war? We haven't defined that, right? Mm. Um, people have some ideas, um, you know, every successive administration have tried to look at what is a digital act of war. And then, and then when you establish what a digital act of war is, then you can talk about what is a response to a, a digital act of war, right? And so, so, so that's, that's one piece. Two, I think we need to change what we consider to be intelligence, right? Yeah. Um, in the intelligence community, you have classified information, right? Secret, top secret, things like that. Well, the Chinese uh, opinion of what is considered intelligence value um, is, is significantly different than ours. And I would say it would, you know, a lot of stuff that the, that the, the intelligence consider as intelligence, but a lot of things that the, the Chinese government considers intelligence we wouldn't consider that so we don't protect it as much right and so we're allowing ourselves to provide this provide this information and 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 the only way that the american economy is going to be resilient from this attack is if the public and the private sector work together 
right? And right now, I feel like um, because of where discourse is in our country, the public sector and the private sector are starting to be a little bit more um, adversarial, right? And, and we got to remember, we're in a war. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't recognize that we are in a new Cold War. And, and I call it a Cold War. It's not a direct correlation from the last Cold War with the, with the Russian government. I call it a Cold War because it's conflict without actual um, you know, bullets uh, flying, flying overhead. Yeah, ground to ground power. Shooting um, and yeah, yeah, ground, you know, ground troops and and planes attacking each other. And again, I, I I hope we never get there. I hope that, that something like this doesn't doesn't happen. But it could over a place like you know, um, people always wonder why do we care about Hong Kong? Why should we care about Taiwan? Why should we care about Tibet? Right? Um, because you know, uh, when you look at what the 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 Chinese Communist Party is looking to do, they're what they want to do in Taiwan is what exactly they did in Hong Kong. They took over Hong Kong, right, in a peaceful coup, and the rest of the world didn't care. Um, just like when the Russians invaded Ukraine, there wasn't response. You know, later on down the road, there were some, there were some, some, some sanctions and such. Right, the Chinese government is practicing this for when they take over Taiwan. What is some of the reasons they care about Taiwan? Yes. Uh, President Xi Jinping wants to create, recreate the, you know, uh, a 4,000 year, the, the way that the, the, the Middle Kingdom looked 4,000 years ago. Part of that includes, includes Taiwan. But guess what else is in Taiwan? They manufacture integrated circuits, right? And some of the biggest fab, fabrication plants are there. What is the most important piece of any kind of technology? A freaking inter- integrated circuit, right? And oh, and right. by the way, you know, my previous comments on if you want to be a global leader in advanced technology, if you had all those elements of production involved, guess what? You, be- you can't, you become unstoppable. Yeah, that's great. And since we're talking about technology, um, you know, there, there have been a lot of instances of misinformation on big on t- tech companies. So how do you think that misinformation is a threat to national security within our politics? Look, um, uh, uh, the 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 Rand Corporation um, just published a study. They call it truth decay. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 th- this is bigger than just any one individual tech company or any one individual person, right? It is this, it is this blurring of the lines between fact and opinion. It is an inability to agree upon facts, right? It is, it is a, in, a, a information ecosystem that prioritizes opinion and personal experience over facts, right? And then it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a, a lack of education amongst the public on being discerning about um, how to get information, right? It's, it's, it's confirmation bias for individuals. So, so this is, this is, um, this is a scary issue. And, and not only is this happening amongst ourselves because um, the way a lot of algorithms are, are Jews that if you say something crazy, right, more people click on it. You yeah. know, I, I, I used to joke when I was in Congress, nobody's ever clicked on a, on a news article that says Congress worked, right? Yeah. You know, it's always like there's a huge fight or, or there's something like that. So, so 
this inability and is is got like how a message how a message moves quickly how why are we susceptible to some of this information right mm-hmm. um I, I and and these are these are things i'm exploring i'm on a um the aspen institute has a has a a disinformation working group that i'm a, i'm a part of um and so we're going to try to explore some of this because this is a uh, you know it, 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 it is getting in the way of the ability to have discourse on public policy, which is necessary yeah. for us as a country to continue and a society to continue to involve. That's why all this stuff is, is, is interconnected. Um, the way big things have ever been done in this country is by doing them together. And the things that are preventing us from having a conversation, um, that, is, um, that, that, is, that is difficult. So I kind of want to shift to the military now and kind of kind of connecting that to civics. Um, how important do you think it is for the mili- members of the military to have an understanding of democratic institutions and civics? Um, how, do, how do you think it affects the trust in those institutions? Does it maybe affect, you know, how strongly, strongly they work, such as like their patriotism and such? I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Here's my experience, right? Like the the. When I was in the CIA, you know, people in the CIA, the, the folks in the military I served side by side with, um, they have a, a real appreciation of civics and the history of our country and, and our democratic values because they recognize that they are the they are the last they are the tool of last resort to in 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 to to uh, uh, to achieve those values, right? And and I think I think. Um, General Mattis, our, our former Secretary of Defense, is is a good example of how he would always talk about how you need the State Department, right? You need diplomacy. You need these other elements. Um, he he would say that a well functioning Congress is more important to the military than having ten more battleships, right? And so so I would say individual uh, leaders, individual like this, the, the ethos of what the military is there to do is is drilled into them in their training and in their indoctrination and in their 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 training courses. Um, so so it, it's it's important. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's and, and guess what? Have, you know, when, when when national security practitioners talk about national security, they usually talk about the dime concept, the four levers of national power, a diplomatic informational intelligence, military and economics, right? And so um, the military is an important tool to ensure that we're, you know, achieving our values um, and that, you know, uh, around the world, because guess what? It's not, a, it's, the world is not a, a um, the, the, the world is a rough place. Yeah. And having having a having the ability, um, having a strong military oftentimes means you don't have to use your military um, because of the other side recognizing that it is um, it is, a, you know, you're not going to win. Right. And mm-hmm. so so strong military is important. A military that's prepared to fight the future wars, not the last war. Right. Uh, the, the wars of the future or potential wars of the future are not going to look like they did in 1945, you know, in, in Germany. And so we need to be prepared to fighting new ones. And a lot of that is going to be, you know, people trying to turn off the lights and not have your electronics work, or how do you defend against that kind of attack? There's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, space is going to play a role. 
So all of these things are, are ultimately connected. Yeah. And, you know, now I've recently been hearing how, you know, in a lot of these military bases, Fox News plays and Tucker Carlson is typically on. Do you think that having him on someone who, you know, has been known to kind of erode democracy in the sense that he really attacks it? Do you think that having that playing in those military bases a lot affects the strength of the military and affects their view on protecting the government? Look, no, because I, I think that's overblown. Right. I, I think people that have never been exposed have been around the military, um, that 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 idea is is overblown, that when the time comes that to protect our country, that a person in the military is going to do something against it. Right. You know, the idea yeah. of a military coup or something like that is 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 to me um, is to me outrageous. And, and so, so I, you know, I, I don't you know, look, uh, men and women in the military are more than willing to watch and, and, and view and read whatever they want to read. But in the end of the day, um, they're there to follow orders from their, from their, from their senior commanders. And, and that there is civilian oversight of, of what's happening and, and uh, of, of how they operate. So I, I, I think that is, I've never, um, I've never experienced that, seen that. Uh, and now look, there, you know, um, there's always, you know, there's always outliers, right? But on the whole, the men and women in the military are willing to put themselves in harm's way in order to defend their, to defend our freedoms. And, and that is something that, you know, my um, 20 year career of associated with national security, I've always seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back at home, um, Obviously, the capital attacks, we're still talking about them today. Um, a researcher at the university, Robert Pape, has been doing a lot of work on researching the capital attacks. Do you, how big of a national security threat do you, did you see that? And how could you maybe link that to civics and, and people understanding what their government does? Well, look, it's linked to all the things we've been talking about this morning. Uh, so so I, I, look, I, if you were alive on September 11, 2001, you remember that second plane uh, flying into the, the World Trade Center. You remember it, right? And, and to me, um, that was an example of how Islamic extremism was the, the existential crisis of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what happened on January 6th, and there's this one image of plain, uh, plainclothes police on the floor of Congress, guns drawn, um, there's also a member of Congress behind him. I think he's like holding a holding a you know a leg to one of the chairs that was broken broken off because they were prepared to defend themselves. To me, uh, that shows how another kind of extremism, right, has is, is the existential crisis of the day. That was fueled by elected officials continuing to perpetuate falsehoods and lies. Right, yep. the 2020 election was a fair election. Donald Trump didn't lose because it was stolen from him. He lost because he failed to, to connect with more um, uh, voters than, than President Biden, right? It, it's period, mm-hmm. full stop. But this, this has been growing and this disinformation, misinformation and straight out lies that's contributing to that um, uh, uh, played, played a role. And so how do, you, how do you be prepared for that? Now, the other part of, of this story is, 
people around the country are pissed, right? They feel like they haven't been heard. They feel like, and, and take whatever the issue may be. So when you don't have an effective government that is actually delivering in a way that is, that is representative of a majority of, of the citizens, then you're going to have and, and deal with that kind of that kind of frustration. Now, I think part of that problem also is the hyper, you know, partisan partisan partisanship that you're seeing in Washington. A lot of that is because of the way um, seats are drawn, um, where 92% of the seats were decided in a primary, whether it's Republican or a Democratic primary. So, so you have equally the number of people on either edges or either fringe. That are unwilling, that are unwilling to compromise. Uh, that is driving this. So you have elected officials that are only pandering to the kinds of people that come and, and vote in, in their election. And so, so that's where this the you know knowing what matters and knowing what like at your state house, right? Like a lot of people want to focus on you know president or congressional races. Well, like, do you know what your city council does? Like, do you know the rules that your state reps do? All this debate around voting rights, you know, these are decided at a, a state house. So, do you know how your state rep, you know, is, is involved? So, so civics is not just federal government, right? It's yeah. understanding all the levels of government and the roles that, that they play and have. Mm-hmm. So, do you think the national security community is maybe shifting more towards looking at inward threats like white supremacy, or like how do you balance looking at you know China versus white supremacy, external versus internal threats? Yeah, so so I, I think it's important. Um, it's it's o conus conus, right? You know, outside of the continental United States, uh, inside the continental United States, the the the. Um, different elements within the federal government are responsible for different things, right? The Central Intelligence Agency is a foreign intelligence service. They're Mm -hmm. focused on threats like China and outside the United States. The Mm -hmm. FBI is focused on uh, domestic elements, right? Which includes, um, you know, some espionage cases, right? So if the Chinese or government or the Russian government are trying to recruit um, their spies, that is the role of the FBI to understand and deal with. Then you have elements within Department of Homeland Security, um, but ultimately the FBI, when it comes to white supremacy, um, uh, it was the, you know, um, and most people don't realize it was under President Trump that the Department of Homeland Security considered uh, made white supremacist terrorist organization or labeled them a terrorist group. Right. Mm. And so the, the elements that are responsible for that are the ones that are going to be focusing on it. And so you, you have seen an increase in uh, DHS following this on the analytic side. And then ultimately, when it comes to the FBI, <clears throat> who are the, the entities responsible um, for busting up uh, domestic terrorism, I'm spending spending more focus and, and, and attention on that. Okay. Yeah. And so you've kind of like explained a little bit about the layout, but how exactly are all these communities connected? Like all these national security agencies connected? Um, I know that sometimes it's a little, gets a little bit confusing. So if you could explain that, that'd be great. Sure. So you have, so, so you have, so so the, the white house has the national security council and the national security advisor. So the national security advisor is the president's senior advisor on intelligence, okay? This is, a, this is not a practitioner, 
This is a, a policy related person. So at, at the end of the day, um, the way the organization is, is drawn, um, the, there's 17 members of the intelligence community. A lot of them report directly to the director of national intelligence, right? This is when it comes to reporting, when it comes to what you're supposed to collect on, um, that tasking comes from the DNI, the director of national intelligence. Also at the beginning of usually a, a new administration, they put out a thing called the NIPIF, the National Intelligence Priority Framework. This outlines, and, and it's a written document that's available that says, here are the priorities of when it comes to collection. And then here's which entity is responsible, whose primary responsibility and secondary responsibility um, on that per particular issue, right? So if you're talking about narco-traficantes in, in, in Mexico or, the, or, or, or Latin America, then you know, DEA has a role, human smuggling is Homeland Security investigations. So all of these folks, that tasking of, of what to collect on and get information is done through that NIPIF process and it's ultimately overseen by the DNI. But the individual heads of those agencies are responsible for those, for the, for those activities. So the FBI actually reports to, to the Attorney General, right? Um, CIA, again, DNI, uh, but, but ultimately there's a direct line um, to the president. And the National Security Advisor um, oversees this process. And then you have people within the National Security Council that, you know, you may have Russia experts, you may have domestic terrorism experts, and that National Security Council or the National Security Advisor, you have one um, that's also for Homeland Security, right? You're going to have one that's it's unfilled right now for cybersecurity uh, now. And so that's how it's separated at um, ultimately at the White House. Um, and so, so that those may, you know, the, the, you know, but ultimately it comes down to um, the president has the authority over all these and then Congress, you know, decides what all these, what all these groups budgets are. And that drives um, where, where some of their focus and attention is. Mm -hmm. And so I think after 9-11, a big problem that people realized was that there was these communities were pretty disorganized. Um, and do you think that they are more cohesive now since 9-11? Do you think that there are still management problems within the community? So um, uh, disorganized, the wrong word, I, I would say information was siloed, right? And, and mm -hmm. so, so um, what the FBI was doing, the CIA may not have known about, right? And so I can say that from my time in the CIA starting in October 2000 to when I left in 2009, um, information sharing improved significantly. And then when I yeah. came back into Congress and was on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, I can tell you that the, 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 the disconnects between federal agencies, um, you know, there, there's still some turf battles here and there. A lot of that times that it's, it's personality driven rather than organizational hurdles that get in the way. Uh, one of the areas where we need to see improved coordination if, if I say, if I, I call um, uh, that, that uh, hor, hor, horizontal sharing, right, sharing across the federal government, what we need to see improve is vertical sharing, and that's sharing with some of the states, states and local entities that are involved with, you know, stuff on the ground. Like, they're the ones that have to deal with, it, with, it, with the case potentially first. So improving that. Uh, and so, not, you know, but, the, but there is a focus. That was the whole reason the DNI uh, was created was to make sure that you didn't have this siloed information 
that is yeah. preventing people from from doing their job. And and um, you know, with the cyber threat, cyber threats changing the game because information moves so quickly that you mm-hmm. have to continue, you know, improve coordination even better. Oh, and by the way, we need to improve coordination with the private sector as well too. I want to make sure our banking, you know, uh, infrastructure, because look, the Russians are coming for our money, right? And so yeah. I want to make sure that the the banks are are, are protected and that we need to improve sharing um, between the the federal government and and the private sector in, in a reasonable way, and in order to defend um, against against some of these attackers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So last question: mm-hmm. um, Do you feel that national security d- decisions are mostly bipartisan? And if so, could you give an example of when Democrats and Republicans were both united on one national security issue? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm so, so uh, two, I, I think two big issues, uh, the threat of, of the Chinese government and cybersecurity. Uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, agree, right? Um, and on, on, on the threat, right? And, and we, there was a um, a, a cyber solarium report that was produced in a bipartisan way um, that talked about ways to improve resiliency of our digital infrastructure. My last bill I got passed in Congress was an AI national strategy, had to pass six committees in an overwhelmingly uh, bipartisan vote. I think it was a unanimous vote. Um, and so when it comes to, when it comes to uh, those kinds of, of, of actions, uh, we're seeing that. Look, there, there's actually a bipartisan support um, on, you know, supporting, organ- you know, international entities like NATO and things like that. Um, now, you know, the, the, the differences are probably highlighted the most. Um, Iran and in, in the Iran deal is, is probably um, the, the most recent example, but there is, there is definitely some, some, some levels of cooperation. Um, I have found that, you know, even something like border security, you know, most, most Democrats and Republicans agree on the use of technology, increasing manpower in order to protect our borders. It's just the edges, um, those voices get, get focused on, on the most. Um, but, but there are, there are, uh, there are important elements and, um, you know, there's going to be debates around what do we do in Afghanistan, right? Um, the latest in Iraq, like uh, that, that, that debate, that debate is healthy and it should be debate, right? It should be, it should be conversations. It should be healthy. That competition of ideas is what is required, right? Right. To come to a, a, a final decision. It shouldn't just be my way or the highway, right? And, and, and that's where some of, of the debates are, 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 are happening. But like I said, two biggest issues, and, and I hope it stays this way, because the, the, the threat of the Chinese government to, to our way of life, and, and I always tell people, look, in 475 AD, a Roman chilling in Rome didn't think the next year the Western Roman Empire would fall uh, because of the Goths, right? In 475 AD, most Romans were probably like, what the hell's a goth, right? And 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 so so this is a potential where we are right now, right? Mm-hmm. If we don't make some changes, and 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 it feels good that even in a crazy, unbelievably partisan time, yeah, Republicans and Democrats agree on the threat, right? Republicans and, De- and Democrats agree that some of the tactics being used, cyber, is something that needs to be focused on. Now we need to translate that into here are the ten things that we uh, we need to do about. Right. So, Congressman, thank you so much for being here. Uh, It was 
pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for promoting, you know, civics. It's important. And, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is not just good for y'all's university community, uh, but the rest of the country needs to, needs to, needs to hear this. So uh, thanks for having me on and for doing this. What a fascinating interview. I hope that our listeners were able to learn more about the national security issues that we face as citizens and how being more aware of our civic institutions can defend our country. I mean, I know I did. And I would say, Nadia, that even this interview helps contribute to that concept. I personally was not aware of how the Chinese government is primarily working to support American technology and so aggressively increasing their power globally. If civilians become more aware, then hopefully there will be greater pressure on Congress to pursue more bipartisan foreign policy that will continue to keep American values of democracy at a global priority. Yes, for sure. Thanks again so much to Representative Will Hurd for agreeing to be interviewed. And thanks, Nadia, for, for conducting such a wonderful interview. That wraps up our episode for today. For you, Shai in the Loop, I'm Emily DeVecra. And I'm Nadia Osman. See you in June.